Welcome to APAC Weekly, a showcase of conversations on the APAC network with Asia Pacific's brightest minds. I'm Oriel Morrison. Coming up, the future of the fossil fuel industry, why Landlock Now is electrifying, and without having access to green spaces in our cities, our health may be adversely affected. But first, in the rapidly growing nanosatellite industry, an Australian company is leading the way globally. Flavia Tartar-Nardini is a shining light for female entrepreneurs in science and technology. The recognised space engineer's 3D satellite printing enterprise is shaping the future of this dynamic industry. It's incredible, starting from two people in a dream, uh, to almost a team of 100 people, seven satellites in the sky and customers all around the world. Um, we started with a vision to deploy a constellation of many, many satellites, very advanced, to provide communication services to, to, to all the world, to connect everything, to connect industries, to connect the, the remote part of, of our planet. Uh, now we have launched, not just at Australia, but Australia, most satellites that are small satellites, they are as big as more or less a pizza box. <laughs> and they have the same capabilities of a very, very big satellite. Um, the space industry is growing really, really fast. And so the satellite industry is becoming just, just very different from what we, we used to see, like, you know, big corporate or big government building one big satellite taking 10 years and billions of dollars. Now you've got startups, high-tech startups, mass manufacturing satellites in very special ways. So Fleet, for example, is the only company in the world that is 3D printing the entire satellite. So with 3D print antennas, with 3D print structure, our idea was like, how can we be fast a mass manufacturing satellite? And we needed 3D printing. Um, it's, it's a different word compared to 20 years ago. But what you need to think is what happened to the, to the world when you can actually build an infrastructure in space that is so, um, so economical and so big? You can connect all the things on Earth. That's, that's, that's what's interesting. Mm. Now, you've done three launches with, with SpaceX. Where are you launching your satellites from? <laughs> so SpaceX has changed the way we reach space. And I think every single person on Earth knows that. They, they, yeah, we build satellites, we, we pack them, we ship them to Cape Canaveral in US, and they get part of most of SpaceX launches. Um, SpaceX now has built a rocket that doesn't just land, as everyone knows, but I can put my satellite in the sky for a fraction of the price that I was used to spend just four years ago. It's like 10 times cheaper. So it really allows me to put satellites in the sky, uh, probably like an Uber. We book it, we put it up, and they go into space. That is a kind of a different deal compared to putting billion-dollar satellites maybe once a year in space. Now, literally, we can fly every two weeks. What's the timeline around when your first 3D printed satellite will actually go to space? We got, now got three or four satellites with 3D printed parts in space. And now we bought a much bigger 
much bigger 3D printer is is a millions of dollars, very big. It's probably as big as a bus, and it's a metal 3D printer that can start 3D printing all our satellites one after the other. And it's just not going to be the first one. We're going to have many. So we looked at the best technologies in US to 3D print metal. We actually use some of the the Australian companies, and we are look, even looking at Japanese companies 3D printing electronics. That is the next frontier. Mm. Mm. Now, now you're also using other types of technology, obviously, to provide to to make these satellites, and you're using titanic kinetic fusion technology to provide radiation shielding um, for the layperson out there, including myself. What is this technology, and how does it work? In space, our satellites are bombarding with radiation, and they need to last and they need to keep moving. So. Uh, all this material science that is very complex, this is bringing 3D print to the next level. So Titanic, that is one of the most successful, successful Australian story. You know, it started 3D printing titanium, for example, or started using new technology to 3D print very specific material. Um, Flavia, what can we expect from Fleet over the next sort of five to ten years? I mean, what, what does this <laughs> sector look like if we look ahead to that? So the sector is growing incredibly worldwide. It's, a, it's an eco- ecosystem that is that is growing in an exponential growth, and that's exactly where it should be. You know, unlike the richest people on earth are space entrepreneurs. That is fascinating. So we need live in a time that that's the case. Fleet is going to launch 200 satellites in the coming years, probably in just in the coming six and seven years. We are providing services uh to almost all the country in the world, you know, uh, we allow um, looking for deposit of lithium and copper and critical minerals. So we serve the biggest problems of the world. Like we big believer in fighting climate change and energy transition, electric cars, and we are trying to use technology to solve this, to solve the biggest problems. And the first one that we are tackling is finding deposit of lithiums, copper and nickel, all around the world without damaging Earth. That is a very interesting topic, and we use our satellite system for that. So I really hope the next five years, Fleet will keep hiring. We are we're planning to hire 100 or 150 people. Having these satellites mass manufacture, but serve, really serve and give services to the, the explorers of the world that want to find uh, the fuel, but not anymore fuel, to help the board to become a better place. So by helping finding new deposit, I think we're gonna help solve one of the biggest problems the Earth is facing right now. How can we um, move to renewable energy, to electric cars, to solar panels, um, having the critical minerals that we need without drilling all Earth? And incredibly enough, space is coming to the rescue. So space is coming to the rescue to do ultrasounds on Earth in the surface. That is very bizarre to think about it. But that's what space is all about. You know, with space technology, we can see Earth from the top. And when you see Earth from the the top, it's unlimited what you can achieve. You know, you can even help everyone to look uh, uh, at the core of Earth. This is how incredible it is. So I really look forward to all this incredible impact that we'll do in the next 20 years with space tech. Research from the University of New South Wales has proven the long-held belief that not only is exposure to nature good for us, it's essential. And in fact, without having access to green spaces in our cities, our health may be adversely affected. 
So what we find is that brain space is really good for uh, our mental health and also physical health. And it's through the left coast when the baby is still growing from mommy's belly all the way to our senior age. So we find that if people are living closer to a certain amount of green space, we typically find it's 30% or more. Uh, they are, tend to be more physical active and they have better mental health um, comparing their peers who are living with no or little green space. And what we find is that if um, uh, people living uh, with uh, 30% or more tree canopies in their neighborhood, they reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes uh, about 30% and also reduce risk of developing hypertension, um, heart disease, and also loneliness. Um, so my research and my team's research um, shows that really important that we having a greener city. So if we if we take this into what's happening in in Australia, you're obviously based in in city in Sydney rather. Sydney and Melbourne, they've got targets when it comes to green space and, and how they want the cities to look. So if I look at these numbers, Sydney's uh, targeted 40% green cover by 2050 and 2040 respectively. Um, is this achievable for a start and is this enough? Um, I think it is possible to achieve that target. Um, as I can see that city of uh, Sydney um, used our research, made this policy. And so the target around is 40%, as you say, because we found that 30% or more could have these uh, uh, health benefits, physical and mental health. Um, but it will take a bit long way, I think, to achieve it because where we're going to plant the trees and the trees will take time to grow. It's not one night you see there's a big tree grow outside of your home. And also the quality of the green space. Are we going to just simply have new parks or are we going to also have the high quality park that everyone feels safe to go and there are enough things um, for them to enjoy and play with their friends and family. Um, and where are we going to place those new parks or uh, the new green space? Um, are those places already have a lot of green and all the places that they really could do with more green space benefit their house? So those questions still remain and I hope that we not only just target the 40% but also think about carefully where and also the quality of the green space. When you talk about quality, that's an interesting point because, you know, does it really matter what type of green space it is? You know, whether it is a park with, with trees and gardens and so forth or whether there's a, a, a huge patch of grass in the middle of the city. I mean, how important is the type of green space? Oh, we find type of green space is very important um, because if you, uh, we all had the experience in how day, and you may see some trees around the pathway, but they're not tall enough, and then that means they could not provide the shade um, that we need. Um, and I also say that uh, some of the places that have a lot of grass, which is, looks nice, but there's no uh, cover of the tree canopies or shade, which means in you know, a really hot day, um, we could not really use it. So um, carefully design about what type of green space um, and also type of the shrub or trees that uh, we need to plant is very important. Again, um, this is why I think uh, urban planning and uh, with uh, nursery industry should really working together. Yeah.
So with, with, you know, working together when you're talking about collaboration between the professions, how do you find more green space? You know, when, you, when you're working within an urban environment that's full of sky, skyscrapers and busy roads, you know, whether it's filled with cars or public transport or whatever it is, how do you find more green space? Very good question, Aria. Um, I know that it's really difficult, especially uh, places like Sydney, Melbourne, you know, Brisbane. Um, the land has become more than ever expensive because people want to live in those nice cities. Um, so how we could reserve the space for uh, green space for people to be active, you know, social connected. Um, so I see some really good uh, innovative examples. Um, so for example, um, like Tokyo, like Singapore, you know, they, they are super cities, they have a lot more population than us. Um, I was impressed that um, uh, one day when I was in Tokyo, I think it's called Ginza 6, a shopping mall. And then, then in the rooftop, there's a beautiful garden, really large, and you can see great views. You can do yoga there. And what I really like that is not just, you know, you get all these uh, benefits of the green space, the view. It's open to everyone. Uh, we do have um, the apartment in Australia, but as you know, most of them, they may have um, a small garden, either rooftop or within the com um, complex, but it's only allowed the residents to access to it. So when we like a space to create new ones, we should be more innovative and working with engineer as well. Think about how we design those urban green space, but also think about who can access to it because we want this is a really good population approach rather than only available to minority people. Geographically, uh, uh, Professor, who's setting the standard here? I mean, when, when you look out there uh, globally, and you say, you know, cities in Australia or cities anywhere in the world should be trying to achieve this. Who sets that standard? Um, from what I observe, I think there are many cities doing really well and they're trying to um, get ahead. Um, so, like, Singapore is a really green city. Um, if many of us probably have already been there and when you get off from the airport, even in their airport, it's very green. I think they are really ahead. But on the other side, um, there are cities in the world like Barcelona and uh, cities in Canada. They are trying to achieve the 30 percentage as well. And as I mentioned, um, for example, like in Sydney, we have this 40% um, target. So I'm so glad that many cities realize how important the green space uh, to us, to our physical and mental health, and they are taking action. As the world rapidly transitions to renewable energy sources, there are clear questions over the future of fossil fuels. Jason Dacey spoke with a globally respected energy economist about this trillion dollar question. Well, to put it into context, after the pandemic, there was an unprecedented pressure for the fossil fuel industries to improve their environmental performance throughout the entire supply chain, including in the delivery of those products. Now, with everything that's been going on this year with Russia, Ukraine, some of that has begun to slide off of the policy agenda and other important topics like energy security and affordability have taken center stage because consumers want their energy services to be available and they don't want to pay excessively high prices for them. So it's kind of a confusing time for 
fossil fuel producers. They're trying to reduce their emissions or offset their emissions, but at the same time provide uh, accessible energy to the world to ensure that there's uh, economic growth everywhere, particularly in the developing world. We are seeing energy markets pivot towards natural gas over oil and coal, but gas has its own green credential challenges. Is this a transitionary energy source, would you say? Natural gas around a decade ago was something of a golden fuel. It was thought to be the bridge fuel towards a low carbon future. But just over maybe the past three, four years, even natural gas has become pretty unpopular because it's still a fossil fuel. Even if it's the, the clean, cleanest of the fossil fuels, it emits much less CO2 than oil and coal when burned. Uh, but nevertheless, natural gas does have uh, a likely important role in the long-term future in that it can also help with the development of renewables because, of course, sources like solar and wind have the problem of intermittency. They're not always available when needed. So this is where you need uh, backup, such as natural gas, which can be brought online and offline very quickly. And therefore, gas can in indeed lead to increased development of renewables. Well, supply chains have been disrupted over the past couple of years uh, due to the pandemic. We've also seen the oil prices go up and up, and we're seeing that affecting the prices at the pump. But oil largely underpins transport fuels. So what is a realistic pathway to batteries and or hydrogen fuel cells powering our supply chains? It's a good question. The transportation sector is particularly difficult to decarbonize because there's no large-scale substitute to oil-derived products. Uh, it's different for electricity where you have competing sources like gas, coal, nuclear, and renewables, but it's really an uh, oil-centric market in transportation. There are some uh, other options that are more expensive and are experienced, experiencing rapid growth but from a low base, what you said, electric vehicles and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, and they are becoming more competitive these days with high fossil fuel prices, and it can even be cheaper to run an electric vehicle. But there's that upfront cost, which is uh, more expensive. Even the cheapest electric vehicle might be three times more expensive than the cheapest uh, petrol-based vehicle. And then there's hydrogen too, which uh, will also have to compete, economically speaking, with the alternatives, with devices that use alternatives like the electric vehicle. So hydrogen probably has a brighter future in longer haul, heavy duty transportation, like the trucking industry, for example. Yeah, you touch on hydrogen there. The stakes are high in the global race to conquer the production, storage and transport of green hydrogen at scale and consumer affordability. What countries are leading the way and how? Australia is one of the leaders because we have a national hydrogen strategy. And although it does give some importance to hydrogen for domestic usage, exports are a big part of it. And of course, that will primarily target the Asia Pacific, the usual trade partners like Korea, Japan, China. It'll also go to Europe, which is expected to be a major importer of hydrogen. And it makes sense because we have the strong renewable potential here, which is needed for the electricity 
that is applied to, to water to extract the hydrogen. But we also have natural gas, which can also be separated into hydrogen. The problem is that there's a CO2 byproduct, but if that can be captured and stored underground with CCS, then also that would be a clean hydrogen option. I think we all agree that, you know, clean fuel, clean energy is the way to go. But, you know, fossil fuels, we're so used to them and it can be politically unpopular, can't it? We've seen an election in Australia recently and it, it can be politically unpopular in rural areas to move away from fossil fuels. So how do you think we can get over that? It's complicated because, as we've seen, the public is uh, supportive of improved environmental performance and efforts to stabilize climate, yet at the same time, they require uh, affordable energy. So uh, everybody has a role to play, including the, the public with our choices, uh, policymakers with the rules they set up, and the producers themselves, importantly, including of oil and gas, and they're doing uh, whatever they can to obtain that social license to operate, like investing in clean technologies like CCS or hydrogen or nature-based offsets like the planting of, of trees, uh, whatever they can do to reduce emissions throughout their supply chain. Well, you grew up in Alberta, Canada. It's an oil and gas city in, uh, in Canada there. And in Australia, we're seeing a big uptake of, of solar. So how's Australia doing compared to Canada and other countries when it comes to the uptake of, uh, of solar? Well, uh, Australia is still fairly dependent on fossil fuels uh, when it comes to exports and also for our own domestic uh, energy mix. It's the same with Canada. You mentioned Alberta. That's a place whose economy seems to go up and down together with the, the price of oil. Uh, that being said, uh, despite that uh, heavy reliance on uh, fossil fuels in Australia, uh, we are very advanced here with the development of solar, which makes sense because we have such huge uh, solar potential and also uh, wind potential. And that is expected to continue, especially now that uh, these industries are likely to get uh, more policy support with the new government. And elsewhere in Asia, you mentioned Australia being ahead of the curve compared to other countries. What about, you know, big countries in Southeast Asia and, you know, being so reliant on fossil fuels, how difficult will it be to get them to come through to clean energy? Those countries also have ambitious goals to decarbonize and are seeing rapid progress. The problem is that all of this comes from a very low base. So renewables are growing much faster than the fossil fuels. But overall, uh, oil, gas, coal still play an important role. And some of those countries in Asia, of course, uh, are on more modest incomes. So it becomes harder for them to afford an energy transition. Yet on the demand side, on the consumption side, they'll play an important role too. And they are implementing policies and making uh, agreements with producers like Australia to also uh, embark on an energy, energy transition. More than 80% of energy generation in Laos is hydro, powered by its 77 dams. Known as the Battery of Southeast Asia, the landlocked nation is now focusing on electrification of transport. Our correspondent in Laos, Steve Cleary, has more. Gauging public sentiment in Laos is always a challenge, but I guess if we are following social media and uh, commentary of the general public, it's generally seen as a uh, positive in terms of 
accessing electricity has been one of the big social and economic changes, particularly in rural Laos uh, over the past decade. What is the role here, Stephen, that the Lao-China Railway plays in this journey? So the Lao-China Railway, which uh, opened in December of 2021, the capacity to export and import goods using electrified transport and taking the pressure off the uh, off the road infrastructure and also decreasing the pollution that's associated uh, with fossil fuel transportation is a very important step or seen as a very important step inside the, the inside Laos and particularly um, inside the government and so this particular project, as well as a potential uh, connection between Thailand and Vietnam via Laos, um, is to a port city in Vietnam, are seen as really key to a policy of taking the country from being landlocked to landlinked. So making sure that Laos is not a isolated from sea and isolated from markets and transportation, but really strengthening the, the country's sovereignty by trying to create a balance between its uh, different uh, geographical neighbors, as well as international partners. And a lot of that is to do with increasing prosperity and uh, trade and investment has a lot to do with that. So therefore these rail developments uh, and particularly as they're electrified, do play a key role in uh, achieving these policy aims. This is seen as a clean and renewable resource and something that, the, that Laos, or a natural advantage that Laos has uh, in terms of its geography is this capacity to, to harness the water from the Mekong and its tributaries to electrify rural areas, uh, particularly as well as to uh, raise uh, revenue from export. And so this really fits in with the uh, socio-economic development goals of the country, which is quite key to maintaining the legitimacy of the, of the government and the political system. Thank you for joining us on APAC Weekly. I'm Oriel Morrison. To stay across the important conversation shaping our future, visit us at apacnetwork.com. Thank you.